This meant that along with other sweeteners, intake increased and boosted the daily calorie count of many Americans, a rise of about 350 to 500 extra calories a day from all the caloric sweeteners combined. Ooh, my fat America, diabetic America, sick America. Don't you dare give me health reform. Don't you dare help me become normal and well. I like it this way. Leading scientists, however, say that the product, made from various chemicals, convert cornstarch into syrup. It's not any worse than sugar. Both sweeteners are made up of roughly equal amounts of glucose and fructose, they say. Such defenses, however, don't hold much sway with people like uh, Ivan Royster, 27, who runs Ban of HFCS, a Facebook page that has 120,000 fans. Like many people who get a creepy feeling about high fructose corn syrup, Mr. Royster points out that it is a highly processed ingredient that was invented in the late 1960s and introduced into the food supply in the 80s. I didn't realize that it's so recent. Well, of course, the obesity problem has just it's just blossomed, bloomed, shot up. Probably these are the right metaphors for obesity. In March, his Facebook page lit up after a study from Princeton University gave credence to the idea that high fructose corn syrup might, in fact, be worse than sugar. Quote, our bodies have been adapted over the years to metabolize sugar, which is natural, Mr. Royster says, but the body doesn't know what to do with high fructose corn syrup. Even though the Corn Refiners Association is losing ground to people like Mr. Royster, it's not giving up the fight. Uh, But by the time an ingredient is pillared on Facebook and YouTube, it faces an uphill battle. Mr. Lempert, the supermarket expert, puts the corn refiner's chances of turning around consumer sentiment at exactly zero. Well, here you go, and there you go. You're back, and I'm still here. I'm Billy Flanagan, and today you'll stick with me and we'll find out how to achieve the kind of thing on canvas that the truly insane seem to come up with with little or no effort or thought. There's a color there. I don't know what it is. It doesn't matter what color it is. Haven't you admired those loony eyes on the tramps, you know, or, or the strange figures in the art of the insane that you find selling for high prices in art centers in the big cities? Well, none of that is as hard as it seems. So today... I'd like you to go along with me today. Try this. Take some of that paint. Let's try another tube here. There we go. There's a big blob of it. I think that's called green, maybe. Not sure. It doesn't matter. It's not as hard as it seems to achieve truly insane effects on canvas without growing through that rigorous training that the insane must go through in those institutions in which they're kept. Now, I'm going to show you today how to do it. You'll be standing on your head. Don't try that. It would be insane. Let's take out our canvas. One of my favorite techniques is to pee all over a fresh canvas before you paint on it. It yellows the background and it gives it a smell that'll put you in the mood to recreate some art of the insane. Just using my hairdryer on it here and you notice when you put the hairdryer on it, the smell really becomes almost unbearable. And it particularly helps when when you're painting the eyes to have this wafting up. Smell puts you right there in the attic or the dungeon or wherever you like to imagine the insane artist. He's painting, he's scraping, he's peeing. You get the feeling. There, that's just right. Now let's take some more paint here. Thank you. How about this color? Doesn't matter. And I'm using a brush here. You'll notice this brush has a number on it. Doesn't matter what number it is. Who cares? As long as there's some number on it, that gets the job done. You wet the brush here and you roll it. There you go. It all looks orange to me. 
and you just then wipe it on your pants, if you're wearing pants, and if you're not, just squeeze it between your legs, because we're sure to find a clever use for it later. Awesome sky, I like sky because it signals to you and to me we're outdoors, but to the insane artist it signals something that's above all the insane stuff that we're going to put on with this trowel here and some other color. Let's use this one, slap it on. We're getting those crazy eyes here, you see. Let's put a hat on that scarecrow. A death's head, I like that. I'll make that a black gardenia, I think. There we go, pee all over it. And before you know it, You've got something that'll look real nice, stacked up with a bunch of pictures of old people at a yard sale or a rummage mall. Well, thanks for being with me. I'm Billy Flanagan. Ooh, Next week on oh, Art oh, of the Insane. Oh, 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 For most of American history, a Supreme Court with no Protestant Christian judges would have been unthinkable. Nearly three-quarters of all justices who've ever served on the nation's high court have been Protestant, and roughly half of all Americans identify themselves today as Protestants. But since John Paul Stevens announced his retirement last month, legal and religious scholars have begun entertaining the unprecedented prospect of a Supreme Court without a single Protestant justice. Besides Stevens, who is Protestant, the current Supreme Court counts six Catholics and two Jews. It's an amazing irony given how central Protestantism has been to American culture, said Stephen Prothero, a religion scholar at Boston University. For most of the 19th century, he said, Protestants were trying to turn America into their own heaven on earth, which included keeping Jews and Catholics from virtually all positions of power. Many religious scholars attribute the decline of Protestants on the high court to the breakdown of a mainline Protestant identity and to the absence of a strong tradition of lawyering among evangelical Protestants. Quote here, mainline Protestantism isn't a pressure group, said Prothero. It's not like the National Council of Churches is lobbying Obama to get a Lutheran appointed to the Supreme Court. And while Judaism and Catholicism have their own uh, sets of religious laws that date back millennia, many branches of Protestant Christianity do not. I mean, for much of the last 150 years, evangelical Christianity has stressed an emotional theology of heart overhead, not a recipe for producing legal scholars with eyes fixed on the Supreme Court. Evangelicals have put more effort into getting elected then in getting onto the bench, said Michael Lindsay, a Rice University professor who has studied evangelical elites. Electoral politics is more similar to the style of rallying around a revival campaign than it is to the arduous journey of producing intellectual giants that could be eligible for the Supreme Court. President Obama is expected to nominate Stevens' replacement soon. Of the three candidates who are reported to lead Obama's shortlist, two, Solicitor General Alina Kagan and Federal Appeals Judge Merrick Garland, are Jewish, while one, Federal Appeals Judge Diane Wood, is a Protestant. Obama's first Supreme Court appointee, Sonia Sotomayor, is Catholic. One explanation of Catholics and Jews' high court agonomy is that members of both traditions have long pursued legal degrees as a way to assimilate into a majority Protestant country. Most American Catholic law schools were not formed to be elite institutions of lofty legal scholarship, but as a way to respond to the fact that other law schools were excluding Catholics, said Richard Garnett, a professor at the University of Notre Dame Law School. It was a vehicle to get Catholics into the middle class. Early on, those schools admitted a lot of Jewish students who were being discriminated against, Garnett said. Today, Catholic law schools at Georgetown University, Fordham University, and Notre Dame are considered among the best in the country. 
Evangelical Protestant colleges, meanwhile, including Regent University and Liberty University, founded by Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell, respectively, have opened law schools only since the 1980s. And law schools with Protestant roots, like Harvard and Yale, shed their religious identities a long time ago, part of the broader fading of a distinct mainline Protestant identity in the U.S., Some legal and religious scholars say the the dearth of qualified evangelical candidates for the Supreme Court came into sharp relief in 2005 when President George W. Bush nominated White House Counsel Harriet Myers to the High Court. 